0: I asked her straight up, like, is your sleep schedule still as fucked as it was when we were in grade school? And she was like, yes. And I'm like, sweet, we're going to play Fall Guys for the next 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Perfect. What's up? Welcome to Deep in the D-Pad. You know the drill. RK Taylor here with Carlos Gutierrez.
0: Hello, friendly neighborhood game designer and host. <laughs> <laughs> not for this episode, though. I'm you just sound like a co-host. You sound like
1: a ghost or something. You sound like, ooh, you know, there's like that undulating
0: <laughs> vibe. Yeah. I, I, I'm throwing the whammy bar on my intro for this one. Whoa.
1: Ooh, guitar here. Okay. Also, regular guitars, too? I don't know. Regular guitars <laughs> have
0: whammy bars, yeah. Okay.
1: I don't know how electric guitars work. So, good thing we're not <laughs> we talking, talking about that today. today? Dude? Yeah, good thing we're talking about game engines today. Unity, Unreal, what happened before these game engines, are there any other emergent game engines that we should talk about, and also how do engines work in general, what does that term even mean? Carl's is going to give us the good, good information today, Uh, but first we have our D-Pad Delights. (laughs) Carl's, you want to go first? You want to tell us about uh, any game engine stuff that you're currently working on, or just your game side projects, or anything like that?
0: So I had this one fun project that I worked on with a few friends. Um, It was a virtual reality project that we kind of roughly call Little Man or something like that. And Little Man is this kind of Katamari-inspired game. Um, I don't really remember how we pulled in the... Uh, where we pulled in the other inspirations from but the idea was hey we like it when we start small and grow really big over the course of a level so we then asked ourselves like what kind of feels good in vr and like moving your arms around feels good like some of the low some of the low level stuff is like eating something in vr is very vr like flat screen games you can you eat things all the time and it feels no different but eating something in vr like feels cool because you're putting it to your mouth and it disappears and makes a sound but we decided to kind of take that idea of katamari Eating, which I guess is kind of like Pac-Man esque. I was
1: thinking more like Snake or Centipede, where it gets Oh, lo- it gets...
0: Snake! Yeah, that's a be- Yeah, that's a better one. Yeah. Uh, like so in in that with the good reference Snake, like you have a, a full size level and you're kind of like this. Uh, I just call him a wizard for now there 's literally like no art in here, but you 're like kind of a wizard character or a warlock, and you have a little imp that you can control using the thumbsticks on the motion controllers and you can control his arms and and the imp i mean his arms and his grabbing just by moving your arms and grabbing and then what your goal is now is to control the imp and make the imp eat as much as he can and you see him getting bigger and bigger as he eats until he becomes like kind of like a little king Kong and uh, the last objective is for him to eat you. That's kind of like our big like whoa shit moment and uh if you're not cool with motion sickness, you're going to fucking hate that moment. <laughs> but it is a very surreal like attack on titan type moment especially because you are the one dictating the action. Like you know, oh, I'm holding my hand up and I'm holding myself in my hand up, which sounds like really trippy and it's like visually pretty trippy and cool. Uh, but that is what we have so far. It's just a demo level where you run around and you eat shit until you eat yourself. And that yeah, reminds me of my Gr- side project. The-
1: <laughs> Grover saves the universe. Uh, Trover, Trover. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, what you were saying about like uh, basically controlling a thing that is acting on itself, right? Mm-hmm. Is that that's. That's, like, how, like, Trover has that level of abstraction, right?
0: Yes, but I think um, what I'm more so talking about is, like, the the thing I'm controlling is now somehow controlling me. Where, as far as I know, in Trover, it doesn't do that. Like, they talk to you and you could nod, but they never, like, start controlling your chair or anything. I see. So, in this case, it would be, like, if Trover grew big and then grabbed your chair, like, but you're using your arm to control Trover's arm. So, you as trover but seeing from your own Cherorpian self grab yourself and lift yourself up and like look at yourself as if trover is looking at a snow globe it's really weird. But anyway, that's Little Man. Tell me about your side project. Wait, is that
1: is that Unreal? Did you use Unreal for that? Oh
0: yeah, that's an Unreal. Uh yeah, we're using like Unreal four point whatever is like recent. Um it has like some built in virtual reality stuff, but like any game engine, you gotta <laughs> build a lot around it to support what you wanna do. Um so yeah, we've been kinda nursing that for quite some time. So
1: has this been has this been released, or when you say nursing it, do you mean you're still working on it, like in chunks?
0: Uh, no. Like the the project itself is not necessarily one game. We're just yeah, we're we're kind of exploring different technical paths and stuff mm. as we like try out different ideas. Okay. So there's there's actually like three ideas or three semi playable ideas within that project file. You know, because it's a whole series of like folders and shit. That's cool. But uh but we don't have it as just one game because uh, we want it to be more of that sandbox that lets us, like, express whatever we want, but quickly, and in a way that other people could pick it up and be like, oh, shit, I get this, which, like, that takes a long, long time, and that's why I say we're nursing it, because, like, it's not the game... Like, the games are being nursed, but the tech... the I guess the tech stack is what we call it underneath all that is being nursed by, like... The engineer and or engineers on the project and this is all just in our free time we're not like breaking our backs for it or anything i mean we are when we really want to (laughs) like when oh little man needs to eat but this bug is happening like i want to fix that bug but uh, outside of that this is just stuff that is purely like man i really wish i could be doing this and then just saying well then let's fucking do it but like on our own terms
1: yeah i can piggyback off that actually uh in regards to my own side project, Um, I've talked to you a little bit about it, um, but for four months in 2021, uh, you know, like as the pandemic was kind of like phasing out, I uh, downloaded Unity and I started to uh, develop this game called, that I'm calling Mama's Bot, Um, and it's super early stages still, but, um, you know, you were saying that you were kind of like creating the game that you were inspired to to make because you wanted to play it, and you can't really do that yet. I mean, with VR especially, there's so, many, so much ground that has yet to be tread, there's so much exploration to do, uh, and like really defining what the genre itself is or the medium itself is. Um, but I, what I wanted was a like platforming roguelike that wasn't an action game at all, you know, doesn't have any combat. And so that's the direction I'm going. I don't know any games right now that are currently doing that. And I I like roguelikes. I like platformers. I don't always want to be bopping something on the head. You know, sometimes I just want to be jumping around or, like, using a lasso or something like that. So, so yeah, that's kind of... And I, I've learned so much already just from, you know, watching YouTube videos. There's so many resources out there. Uh, Unity is very complex. And, you know, I just know that... I'm at the tip of the iceberg, but one thing I've really enjoyed about it so far is that I, uh, you know, I've learned some programming, I've done some visual art, you know, I got these, I got different graph paper, uh, and I, I want the, the art style to be very like geometric and stuff. Uh, and I've done some of the like animating, you know, t- taking the different, um, the stills and, and, you know, having them execute a specific, you know, combination of those like almost flipbook like, you know, yeah, depending on the, the button inputs. Um, and now I'm on the music phase, and I've, like, totally – my project has totally derailed because I'm just, like, obsessed with, you know, like, music theory at this, like, for this month right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, it sounds like for you, because you're covering all these different bases, you're – and because, you know, you're early on into it, you're learning a lot of new stuff, and it's it, – it's t- going to take you a while longer if you keep going at this pace do you feel okay with that do you think that might hurt your morale if it goes on a little too long as you're learning these things
1: yeah i thought that i would be able to create the game much more quickly than than i now understand like i i was originally thinking like oh this would probably take like a year max um and now seeing all the different parts and knowing that i'm trying to like do this entire thing on my own uh i know that this would be a years long project like no no doubt about that yeah. and i also you know because i'm like stepping outside it for a minute and, and you know playing music instead um and learning about me like how music works really um i you know i'm i still feel happy and motivated to and to pursue and to like you know learn and be creative at you know like not simultaneously, but like in tandem, I guess, you know, or, or like, it's like switching back and forth between learning, 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 and then trying something. Um, so as long as I'm, I don't like have like rigid deadlines or timelines. And, you know, also the fact that it's not, uh, there's no like financial dependency on this whatsoever. It's, I'm able to do this as a hobbyist. I don't really feel that pressure. Um, you know, I think it's like in my, in my work with my, with like the clients that I work with, I, uh, one thing that I, I was taught uh, in some training, which, you know, most of these trainings are such an eye roll, but I, I thought this was such a good takeaway. Um, you know, I work with young adults who are coming out of foster care, so they are often um, – they haven't had a lot of support, and, and my job is to – Provide them some of that support. Um, and that could be like going to the DMV and getting their permit, for example. Um, and I can encourage them to, to take practice tests or I can do that with them or something like that, right? And that's, this is just one really tiny example. But the, the idea from the training is to be task oriented rather than goal oriented. And essentially what that means is like, don't, don't expect the outcome. You know, don't wait for, the, the reward, you know, if, if your goal is to get this person a permit, they may, ha- they may have fa- failed the test like five times and like you have to be okay with that. You have to be resilient to that. So knowing that you have done your job by enabling this person to even take the test, that may have been an opportunity that they didn't have, uh, otherwise. So it, it's a way of, of feeling, um, like, compassion satisfaction rather than compassion fatigue right uh and and i i find that is similar with creative work you know when you're creating a game as long as you're enjoying the process of creating the game uh and you're following a passion that you have and you're you know and and you're also you're not financially dependent on it this is specifically for hobbies i guess um it's much harder when you know (laughs) your food is dependent on your ability to create but
0: if you're like an indie creator trying to get your next game or your next update out, yeah, it's way more stressful.
1: And now let's get deeper into the D-pad. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Enough of enough of this. Let's just break down what a game engine is, please, please, just work with me like I am a kindergartner, okay? Um, <laughs> if someone knew nothing about technology, right? What is the function? Of of a game engine, I guess, like in the most basic sense, um, a criteria that would cover all things that we would refer to as game engines. So without using any specific game engine as an example, ideally,
0: for someone who knows little to nothing about technology,
1: let's assume they've played a game. They understand okay, what a game cool. is.
0: All right that that's that's a fair step easier. Let's say they played uh, the original Mario or whatever. Yeah. So the game engine is kind of the like backbone of uh. It's the technical backbone of the game. If we look at it in a more, say, automotive or vehicle sense, the game is a car or a train. It's your vehicle that you transport across some sort of platform. And the engine is your roadway or your rail system. So your game is your car, your engine is your road, your game is your train, your engine is your rails. The engine is what allows the, or rather the... uh the engine makes the tracks that allows your game to, like, properly run and function the way it's supposed to. A car without a road could operate, but it's probably going to be bumpy and uncomfortable. A train without rails I don't think works at all. I'm, I think they just immediately fall over, like, a fucking cow tipping or something. <laughs> but
1: So the game is engine is the infrastructure. And yeah, and basically the the game itself like the the software that you're the application that you're running, how is it able to switch between different tracks? You know what I mean like
0: so what do you mean by switching tracks? Do you mean like changing the engine while the game is in progress?
1: I'm having trouble with the vehicle metaphor because game engine is like engine is a, is like an already a part in a car at one yeah you know so it's like really can we do it without can we do it without a metaphor like I I understand yeah. that it's enabling it sounds like it's enabling the uh like game to be played
0: yes right but th-
1: is it an is it an opera- an operating system like is it software
0: okay to kind of step away from that car train metaphor. You kind of called it on the money. The engine is the infrastructure. The game is whatever uses that infrastructure. So, from a physical standpoint, it is software. It is something you're going to download in the old days. You know, it was probably stuff you installed via multiple floppy disks or CDs. You know, right, I can't touch
1: a game engine the way I could touch a car engine.
0: Exactly. Yes. And so what the game engine typically looks like is, like, the matrix code. It's just all, like, C-sharp or what have you. Not C-sharp. C++ or what have you that is, like, just all in different components in this master hierarchy of shit that you, like, in some cases can't even touch because, like, you don't have admin permissions or something to touch it. Uh, So what does this look like? Well, typically, you know, for any developer who has say unity or unreal it's going to be a like shortcut icon on your desktop you're going to double click it wait a little bit a window pops up that says unreal engine and then boom like or unity and then the uh whole window opens up and you have this kind of like blank level in front of you maybe it's blue maybe it's grayish with like clouds in the sky but you'll have like just this blank thing in front of you in some cases in other cases they'll have like a template map or something that's loaded with a character in there so you could just be like oh cool maybe i could play this and lo and behold you can and from there you could like click the different actors in the scene and there's many uh detail focused windows around uh this kind of main editor thing so if i had to visually break it down for you uh you open up the editor you see a big window you know let's let's say you were opening microsoft word or any like browser tab right you got this one big window covering your screen and now it's segmented into like five or six different rectangular widgets one of these widgets lets you see into the game world Another one of these widgets lets you see all the game files you have. A third widget lets you see all the details of any game object you click in the world. Another widget may tell you what levels you have in the world and or what those levels contain. And that helps you kind of organize your files and make sure shit doesn't get out of hand where you have, like, pickups living in the same level as, like, your hard-coded scripting for, like, action to happen and things right. like that.
1: There are also uh, layers. There's, you know, you can see what's in the foreground, what's in the background, and, like, what's in the midground, and you can create those layers, It's which is similar to how oh, the Adobe, the visual Adobe programs work, like Photoshop. Um, they also have, like, you know, an inspector slash hierarchy type thing, Um so there are a lot of similar – if you've ever, like, looked at both of, like, these side-by-side, there are a lot of similarities. Um, Also, things like, like GarageBand or, you know, like, they're, like, uh, DAW's, I think, Digital Audio Workstation, I think, is the is the acronym yeah. that's used. Uh, They have similar – you know, they, except they're layering with different tracks, you know, but being able to have exclusive control over these things, make these things visible or, you know, invisible or inaudible, you know, it's it's essentially the same function. It's just interfacing with a different sense.
0: Yeah and we often see uh like kind of short screenshots of these things in those like to tie it into an earlier episode with the games hype machine or games journalism uh oftentimes when we see these commercials that are like yeah you know we are we're the developers or like i'm mr executive and i'm very in tune with the developers as they're talking in a soup in front of people who have been like crunching for 70 hours that week and you know then you see their editors on screen in the background sometimes they're blurred to not show you know what game is in development but if you have seen any of those types of videos then you have kind of seen what one of these game editors looks like and even if you haven't seen the editor itself yes a lot of the programs around it kind of look similar they definitely don't uh they don't have a core function uh that is like similar but they have all these different widgets and accoutrements that like just work well so it becomes almost like standard practice across uh, like some type of software spectrum which seems to be the whole widgets and layering and, and stuff seems to be kind of like ubiquitous across creative applications. Like I wouldn't necessarily see that in Excel.
1: We found a very efficient way of of like manipulating the data like data across mediums, uh media. One thing that blows my mind uh about game engines specifically in contrast to these other digital audio workstations and like the Adobe programs. Is that uh, the the game engine itself is like a bunch of code, like you said, it's like just like a ton of C sharp, right? But it's presenting you with this UI that enables you to code. So like, there's just like a level. It's like we have found the easiest way to write code and manipulate this, and then give that to developers so that they already have a bunch of tools. Um, you know, they still have to learn how to code and develop and do all these design and, and all of that, but without the game engine, you know, or sc- imagine creating a game engine from scratch. You know, you, you have a lot of tools at your disposal because they already came packaged. There's been a lot of trial and error. People have realized how to make this more efficient. And I guess that makes me wonder what game engines, like, looked like in the in the past, but like, I guess let's hold off on that. Um, I'm curious about, like, the UI of them and stuff, but before we do that... Um, I want to touch on like consoles really quick because I was thinking, I was thinking about the infrastructure conversation that we were having. And it would seem to me that the, the, like N64 would be the infrastructure, the physical machine. And the, the train on the rails would be the, the cartridge that you would be like literally putting in and like it would
0: be connected with the different media. In the physical sense, that's, that definitely connects. Yeah.
1: Right. So why is it, I mean, it, it is the case that, if you have like an let's say an N64 game and a PS1 game right they could be made in the same engine but they're not able to be played on the same console so where does the console fit in you know to the whole game engine conversation
0: so that's kind of like towards the end step i suppose um i can't really speak for how it was handled like decades ago but i can tell you more or less how i understand it works now which like if you have unity or unreal uh you have your game set up as a game and they have magic code in them that basically allows you to build out the executable the .exe file that you double click to run the game it builds it out in whatever special way coding wise it builds it out for um like the PlayStation platform versus the Microsoft platform say versus the Nintendo Switch platform um because they have some sort of differences in uh in those console software architectures i think i am now really close to talking straight out of my ass but i believe that's kind of how it works it's like the playstation software that's already in there the playstation operating system like the data that needs to be pressed to disk for that type of operating system is slightly different than the data that is needed to run on an Xbox.
1: And that's because there's hardware differences, right? Like, the software is tailored yeah. to the specific, let's say, graphics card, which would be like a hard- a piece of hardware. Is that correct?
0: So the consoles themselves are built with, in some cases, very similar components, and within those components has to be software, uh, some sort of operating system or software architecture that utilizes those components to say their fullest potential. And to make that happen, there are, I guess, like some sort of like coding differences within, say, a PlayStation and an Xbox and a Switch and what else have you. Actually, this could also be. I imagine there is also something about like NPCs themselves. Cause like I hear problems or, or rather I read problems on the internet of like, Oh, this certain like graphics card is not working for the game. And it's like a modern graphics card. And the devs will say, Oh, we actually like, you know, we haven't like worked in support for that framework yet. Um, so I think that problem, but for consoles is why when you launch unreal and you're like wanting to play a build of your game, it, gives you the options to export it to say a Microsoft framework, a Sony framework, a mobile framework, because most seems like most phones just have the same platform type architecture and uh say like the Nintendo one. It gives it just special code so that it can inject itself to the operating system of that console, I believe.
1: Okay, cool. That that is helpful. Um okay, can we go can we
0: get to the history yeah let's jump into some history so
1: is every is it the case that every game has like was pong created using a game engine
0: yeah so i think so and we'll go even earlier than pong Um, because pong you're you're talking about like okay backgammon it is And there was (laughs) – yeah, so it was actually called Tennis for Two, and it wasn't built on a game engine per se. It was Tennis for Two. It was built on either a kernel or some type of display hardware. Like, basically, it's like, what if, you know, 1960s IBM Watson, which is probably the size of, like, a letterbox – What if that had a little like submarine radar screen on it, and you could play Pong? Like that's literally what it was. Yeah, I've seen the pictures before. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna hack this mainframe and fucking make Pong, bro. Like, oh my god, that's so funny. (laughs) Excuse me. So that's kind of like where uh, things started out. Like that's not the definitive start. I I'm not sure, but tennis for two was like a real big moment for like early early games and that uh you know later on down the road uh more things were being built on say uh display hardware uh which means kind of like the consoles or the arcade cabinet like it's very it's specifically like this machine only runs streets of rage and nothing else um and uh or or uh like Pac-Man for Atari twenty six hundred is only built for twenty six hundred, like it, it's built from the ground up for the twenty six hundred, which is why, uh back in the day, quote unquote, when we were playing games like Spider-Man One, the movie, the game, uh, you would have a different game for the GameCube version, the Xbox version, and the PS two version. Like uh, you know, that's not that long ago, and oh we were still gosh. having that.
1: A completely different game. Because they would have to code it from the ground up each time, they couldn't just transfer?
0: Is that what you're saying? They were able, I don't know how bad it was back then, but they were able to keep some level of parity between the games, but there were stark differences. Not like one game, you know, outside of the visual fidelity, and it wasn't necessarily like, oh, this game looks like horrible trash, and this game looks like, you know, amazing. It was more so like, oh, uh, and just taking the Spider-Man game specifically, it's like, Uh, why why am I missing a whole Craven the Hunter chapter? Why am I missing a whole Venom chapter? And it's like, oh, the GameCube disc literally didn't have the space to put that level or two in the game. So it's on the Xbox version and the PlayStation version. In some cases, it might be those mini CDs. Yeah, man screw those mini CDs oh, that's, that's
1: wrong <laughs> i did were not Q, know that.
0: but that was rough <laughs> it's, like,
1: it's like this is this is supposed to be a home console like a like, home gaming console this is not like some psp shit
0: <laughs> yeah and i mean you know that's funny you mentioned that cuz the psp i think was one of the like strongest uh if i recall it was like one of the strongest uh handhelds and then maybe the vita right after that but i feel like we're detouring uh, or rather getting distracted a little bit So, focusing it back on the history of things, like, we talked about the Tennis for Two, uh, we talked about kind of, like, when engines weren't even really a thing, everything was just coded from the ground up, and the coded from the ground up thing is not the Spider-Man thing, I think that's, like, you know, things progressed a lot to that point, that's more so the Atari 2600, like, let's make Pac-Man for Atari We got to build it from the ground up for Atari, but we also got to build it from the ground up for this other console, and and this, that, and the third. And that is, like, tremendously difficult for any developer to do. Um, But moving forward from that, we kind of get into the, I guess, NES, SNES era, where, like, there's still building things from the ground up but i think we start to see a bit of of uh templatization if that's the word like prefab prefabbing prefabrication you know like basically these 2d construction kits uh RPG Maker is a modern day example of one that that's actually been around since like the 80s RPG Maker or something like that um which RPG Maker I think is a variant of Game Maker which is a 2D uh game engine specifically 2D for 2D games on PC uh there's also Click and Play which uh came out in the 80s and I think has gotten multiple iterations and I mean the most recent example that's probably hit it big is none other than Super Mario Maker you just have a tablet, click clack click clack click and you play. It's literally click and play with like all the sound effects of like the bricks coming together and you testing out your stuff. Um so like back back in Mario 1, Miyamoto had to use literal graph paper to map out like his levels and I don't I don't exactly know how that translated into like the engine itself. Maybe it's something similar to how Mario Maker works and that's why they had to do it on graph paper. Um but We've progressed so far since then. I am very happy for it, Uh, (laughs) because making games was tough.
1: It makes sense that they would use graph paper. I mean, one of the first features that I learned when I was beginning with Unity was uh, how to, like, enable a grid system, because you just need to know how, like, the size of things, the distance between areas, and, you know, like, distance is extremely important for any visual medium, Where things
0: sit is vitally important to like so many things in the game yeah says the level location (laughs) (laughs) yes location matters location location location, (laughs) that's what realtors say (laughs) yeah yeah
1: um you're like the like overzealous professor who's like uh chucking their opinions at at the students (laughs) uh and they like just take it as gospel you know
0: you're like levels
1: the most important possible component of a game and there's just like some lighting engineer who's like crying right now
0: Oh, I mean, no. Well, yes, of course. Of course, someone will will feel strongly about something. But uh, I I definitely take lighting as a big consideration.
1: So you so you took us from tennis for two, which was which came out in the late fifties, and through the nineties. When did Unreal and Unity pop up? I I think that most people who who game in general must have uh, they must see these logos, right? They're at the beginning of almost every video game, uh, they're completely ubiquitous and people have probably never paid attention to them. I'm sure that there are some people who like have no idea what that even refers to. You know, I don't, I don't think I would have even five years ago or something. So how did Unity and Unreal become so big and are, are they like the duopoly right now? I mean, is there, is there anything that could possibly threaten, uh, their duopoly or is it just that they really perfected game engines to a point where there doesn't need to be any third
0: nah nobody has done that yet but you've got a good slew of questions so i'm i'll try to tackle them in order uh so you asked like when did unreal and unity like start becoming a thing um and or like why did they become a thing um, the why is because it made shit easy. It templatized as best as it could making a type or multiple types of video games. Rather than having to build something from the ground up every single time, the entire workforce was like, why the fuck are we rebuilding this shit every single time? Like, a phrase we hear often in um, my field is, don't reinvent the wheel. Don't reinvent the wheel. Because I think, you know, it, This was literally them every single time reinventing the wheel up until 1998 when Unreal Engine 1 is released. Uh, May 22nd, 1998 is when the Unreal Engine comes out. And it comes out with uh, Unreal Tournament, the first Unreal Tournament, a first person shooter. It's got like multiplayer, I think, online connectivity. And then has this like, here's this, you know, sandbox for you to make your own shooter type of unreal game and fuck with it and like make custom maps do scripting do this and like have it playable for other people that have unreal engine um that's how it started you got
1: me busting out the whiteboard i'm i'm hype uh really quick before we get to the other questions if we can even remember them i just want to tack on that uh, it's not just that you don't want to reinvent the wheel because that's a waste of time. Although that is huge. I mean, that's a, a big. That's the biggest resource, right? Right. It's also that you can be. If things are already prefabricated, you can then do more complex. You can create more complex mechanics, right? Yes. So if you already have the structure for a skill tree, and then you can implement different skill trees in different parts of the game, you know, and and you have the basic. Uh, technology already worked out you're just kind of changing the, the
0: variables and much like the things we identified with like photoshop and the other creative programs like the layering and the different widgets we end up seeing that appear through the growth of unreal and unity and where we get to see the complexity of games increase is through the kind of um common usage of certain mechanics or tools within many games so as the unreal engine and unity get updated they are reaching out to the to the creators to the community of developers and saying hey like what do you need how can we better serve you because they're trying to create a symbiotic relationship they want to make a really good platform so people can make really good games so that people will go and buy their engines specifically to make better and better games and say, hey, I I, want to make open world games. The market needs open world games. Unity, give us open world capabilities. Unreal, give us open world capabilities. If Unreal says I can't, then the market's going to go to Unity. If now it is like, oh, Call of Duty is the biggest shit on the block and Unity can't really do first-person shooters well, then it looks like Unreal is going to have quite a good amount of business for the next little while. Um, Same goes with kind of like the graphical fidelity updates and stuff like that. Like Unreal, as far as I know, has like always been leading the charge in like high fidelity graphics when it comes to game engines. Whereas Unity is in many ways far more approachable and if anything like using unity helps you learn more about game engines Mm -hmm. than say unreal because unreal has a lot of things that's kind of like you know, tucked away in the background for the sake of streamlining whatever you specifically are working on. Just to kind of wrap up that thought, these game engines got updated with more widgets, like the layers tool, like the let me see all my object, the world outliner is what it's called. Let me see all my objects in this level tool. The viewport with different camera angles, right? You mentioned you could see things like a grid. You could see things, you know, they added in the ability to like change your camera perspective from like full 3D to like, maybe tilt shifted to top down to like from the left from the right they even gave you the ability to look at the game world through multiple windows so if you wanted you could have like a cool like two by two grid of like just different angles looking at this one thing and you know it's come to this point where we can now make supremely big and complex games with these engines that can pump out movie-esque titles
1: the engine is obviously a great utility, right? It allows things to become, uh, systematic and easily cla- classifiable. And, you know, it's like, it's like, ha- get, imagine having a word processor, like a typewriter, old school typewriter, and then getting Microsoft Word and knowing that you have cut and paste. That's a, that's an amazing feat. And you never want to go without. Cut like copy and paste ever again. Yeah. You don't want to go back to to using a typewriter, um, unless you're a hipster. But there's still something about it that feels like dirty to me about the game engine for some reason. And I I don't want games to have to be coded from bottom to top. But it seems like it's serving some kind of market, and you know, there's people people are getting their hands greased. I just it reminds me of like factory farming where everything has become so systematized, right? Like I feel like the game engine is almost like the electronic cow milker you know like it just attaches to an udder so that we can produce as much milk as possible because the demand of milk is so high and there's something about that feels like less pure uh but I, i you know again like why reinvent the wheel right like that's i'm i'm encouraging that feeling that i'm having is like encouraging a less efficient system or something uh and i don't i don't stand by it but it's it seems curious and you know i'm i'm curious about it's The way it's arising in me. Wow.
0: There's definitely a a lot of I scratch your back, you scratch my back type of thing going on, I guess, because that symbiotic quote unquote relationship needs to be made like it takes so long for a development house to make a custom engine. It takes so long as well as it, it takes time, money and hundreds of hundreds of people if not more. And with those hundreds of hundreds of people, it still takes, like, years. That's why, in in a lot of cases, you know, like, building an engine from scratch is extremely, like, costly and risky, and, like, I don't know what, gets you greenlit for creating a whole new engine to start doing things besides maybe the prospect of we can stop paying Unreal and Unity and just use our engine across all of our studios that's the only thing i can see being that like long run justification but but doing that creating the engine itself like you basically can't have anyone making games because if you're now making an engine from scratch you're only gonna want to employ engineers for however for however long you need them to build the base And that is not to say that you shouldn't have artists and designers, because if anything, now they all have to get into the mix of the conversation, because they are thinking of like, what's everything I could have ever wanted from a game engine, and what's all the shit I wish every game engine I've used could have avoided. And that's like, really hard for people to rack their brains on. But that is what happens at like, the base level, like there's no game making happening. And then it's like, maybe four years in, when they're finally like, oh, well, now we have a viewport that lets you see the game world. And now we have a window that lets you click on all this shit. Because they're having to build that themselves. Uh, in some cases, or in a lot of cases rather, like I guess with bigger games, they they buy uh, or license a version of Unreal or Unity and then they build on top of that. Like they have the right to build on top of that and make it into an engine that's way more customized to their studio and what their studio is hoping to achieve.
1: Yeah, it's like if we thought about, uh, like, a company that employed painters, right, and then what they decided is that all of a sudden, instead of making paintings, they're just going to try to create every color by hand by appropriately mixing all of these different paints together. All of their efforts would have to go into creating, like, creating new colors of paint, right, rather than, like, painting pictures, Um, and they would have to believe that that investment was... That, that was gonna be, there was gonna be a financial payoff or some other kind of payoff in creating all of these paints. Perhaps they could sell their paints uh, to other people. Yeah, it is.
0: It's kind of like I guess taking uh, either the palette of colors and like fucking tacking on your own extra like side palette. For additional colors or like or you know this metaphor is going to get really weird but so i'll just end it here you could potentially you know if the if the palette that you're taking paint off of is your is your engine you could potentially like break a piece off in a way you know move it around and attach it to another side that's actually like more helpful or something rather than like reducing from it you're starting with a common place because nobody wants to make all that like low-level shit again and again and from there you're like oh well we really want to do cinematics like knock it out the park okay well now we're gonna like type in extra code for our cinematics uh we're gonna type in code so that like there's no loading screen when when kratos finishes a fight and then a, a cinematic starts and we're gonna have to code that in we're gonna have to code in both the ability to like seamlessly transition as well as the ability to not need a loading screen, as well as the ability, you know, to have these characters, in some cases, these characters are like instantly being, uh, well, they're being swapped in. Like their, their player character and their cinematic character are not the same, so maybe you need code to magically swap these people in without, uh, you know, revealing the swap is happening, even if they're on screen at that very instant. That's the real magic, the real smoke and mirrors shit that the uh technomancers do.
1: For a skill tree today, I wanted to talk about uh narrative specifically, something that we could relate to in video games, but also that, that transcends across other media of art. In the history of ideas, there are there's like a lineage of of people who have influenced other people, right? And and we can look at this as like a like a web because some of some people were influenced by multiple people and those people go on to inv- influence other people almost like a uh, like a food web you know it's kind of how I'm picturing it the hero's journey i think kind of starts with uh carl jung uh who was a psychologist who wrote a lot about archetypes
0: uh, yeah you brought him up when we talked about control yeah
1: oh dope okay cool um yeah there's a lot of jungian stuff that's like Uh, in control and like the the things that you collect and read and there's a lot of like lore that's based on his work but this this book that i'm holding up is by joseph campbell um joseph campbell was influenced by young and uh he was he was a folklorist so um basically he just studied storytelling across different um cultures and different time periods and he found commonalities between them right that was kind of like his okay. his whole shtick he and george lucas like were like intellectual bros because the the hero's journey um star wars was based on a hero's journey right joseph campbell i think he was kind of a celebrity in his day I guess I should talk about what the hero's journey is, right? That's the whole point of this. That's what we. That's what the skill tree is about. The hero's journey is a uh, a path, right? Um, I learned about about the hero's journey from the perspective of writing fiction, right? And I studied a guy uh, called Christopher Volger who took the ideas of uh, of Campbell, who took the ideas of Jung, right? And so. Mm-hmm. Over across, you know, a century that people are writing and reacting to different ideas. But the idea of the hero's journey, and it comes from the archetype of a hero, right? The original Jungian archetype. Um, right. It, it takes a character who, through the, through the process of transformation, and like literally any protagonist of anything, right? If it, it, right. Except things that are like postmodern, right? This is something that sets postmodern uh, work Apart part is that there isn't necessarily some kind of triumph or some kind of transformation, and that can reflect the bleakness of a world. But, you know, for pr- prior to the postmodern era, and I think still in most video games, uh, there is some kind of quest that a person is going on. Um, for more literary work, that's usually more of an internal quest. And for, you know, genre, like what what is classified as genre fiction, like sci-fi or fantasy, that's an actual quest. Quest like an external quest, so getting the ring, you know, in Lord of the Rings, or defeating Voldemort in Harry Potter. Those are very external, co- conquerable goals, um rather right. than something that's like about like a transformation. Like, how can I deal with the grief of losing my husband is is an internal, more kind of like literary, more psychological approach. But the hero's journey, because video games require interactivity with the world, their their journey is similar to the the genre fiction type of. Um, approach right so usually there's a task you have to collect things you have to get to some finish line or something like that
0: right right like luke needs to meet a dude get a lightsaber learn a trick and then he could beat the bad guy that's kind of like his his journey right exactly
1: yeah and and so there are different um like there are graphs that depict like the like the 12 steps of the hero's journey and and we're not going to run through All of them. But, you know, it's like, basically, it's like there are sub conflicts, right? It's like, oh, like, at some point, you know, the like, one of the the first ones, for example, um, is is the ordinary world. And then there's the call to adventure. So something happens in the typical world that now is motivates the the you know, impetus for the rest of the story. Without that event, there would be no story, because things would have continued to be
0: ordinary. In, right, this is... Bowser shows up, steals a, a princess or a fairy, and Mario's like, oh, fuck that, and has to chase after.
1: Absolutely. Um, usually, in, in, like, I don't know how often this is true in video games, and it would be interesting if you could think of any examples, but the next step would be the refusal to call, okay? So n- normally... You know, this is the, you're a wizard, Harry. And he's like, no, I can't be a wizard. That's ridiculous, (laughs) you know? And then it's like, oh, well, he's on his path, you know? So... The idea of conflict, there has to be some kind of conflict. They, the person cannot just readily accept the responsibility because that person kind of already is a hero. There has to be some resistance. Often they're guided by a mentor, which is the fourth step, right? Um So that could be – that's a Merlin-type type character. There's someone who has the knowledge, the know-how, who is not ca- personally capable of completing it, right? So if a, if it was a sports right. movie, this could be a coach. They're not athletic enough to to do this, but oh, they Oh, maybe
0: that's... Uh, is that like Hattie, the hat character from the newest Mario game?
1: I was thinking like Toad he's... is often the mentor, because for the player... Okay. See, it's interesting, because you are pl- controlling the player, and you're, you're mm-hmm. c- controlling the character in a video game, but they also have to feed you information. Like, they don't... They're not necessarily feeding Mario the information of Press A, but they, they're mm-hmm. acting like it, because it's coming out in dialogue. So, um, it probably changes across the Mario franchise but like yeah. when i think of mario 64 like toad was like there for tips you could like walk up to toad and ask toad a question or something like that
0: true yeah, yeah like th- yeah toad was all over the place and they somehow knew exactly like what was going on but they just couldn't do it themselves. Like, oh, dude's at the top of Bob-on Mountain. I'm too small to pick him up. Mario, you're just my stature, but you can pick him up somehow. (laughs) Go do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The next few steps are about, you know, accruing allies, getting enemies, you know, having the major battle. And then it rounds out um, by going back home. Sometimes there's there's a step called the resurrection, um, you know, which very, like, Christian... uh, like language i think you know i think that that's part of like the jesus's hero journey is involves the resurrection and and return um but that's and that's the fa- final one right so it's return with the elixir is is what Volger calls the the final uh the final step so basically they they come back they're either celebrated or you know they they have the key to the city or something major happens in their return home the townspeople feel safe Blah 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 now they're celebrated and and eventually they become their own ordinary world afterward, right? Like, this is the idea at the end of, you know, fables like Happily Ever After, right? That's what that is telling you is and nothing else ever ha- there was no conflict ever again this was the this yeah. was the ordinary world forever um the world had changed for the better there's a there's a sense of permanence to it there's no need to tell another story because this was legitimately the end of anything interesting that ever happened here but yeah i don't know i, I was just thinking like this would be a cool way to for if, for people who hadn't encountered um the hero's journey before uh perhaps thinking about about games through the lens of understanding the similarities across games and not in a way that is trivializing them but perhaps even connecting them to other forms of media or like really old stories um any any fables that people are you know familiar with or stories that your grandparents told you growing up or anything like that you know like they're looking at, at like this kind of central arc that that transcends storytelling um i also want to say that there are, is controversy about this because it's kind of like formulaic and and some people are resistant to the idea that there is just uh what what, what is called a monomyth, right that's that's like what the hero's journey is considered yeah. the, the extremists would say there is only one story
0: literally right like everything is t- is using this t- story template right they abstract everything to the point where it fits that formula
1: yeah, and I think I would like to talk about things that resist monomyth, like, at some point in the future.
0: I think that could be, like— uh, like. A... Yeah, I was just about to ask you, like, are the people who make this monomyth argument, are they just, like, taking examples and paring them down until it fits this thing? Or are does it actually fit just that much stuff? And that's absolutely, like— a huge topic that we could jump into. That's way too big to jump into right now. Maybe we'll do it as a bonus bite, or who knows, a full episode. Oh, and the uh, one thing I almost forgot to add was I think a lot of your hero's journey stuff that you mention. Um, I got a lot of different like Marvel stories out of it, and I'm sure they like heavily, you know, pull from that framework. Uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe specifically, absolutely almost to a T I think wisecrack did a video some time ago on uh it was either monomyth or like joseph campbell and how he relates to uh marvel and there was like some really cool things about like roles like the the warrior versus the magician versus the the hermit or and what those people became and how like captain america transitions between different roles and how tony stark transitions between different roles and to some extent gets to that resurrection point that you were talking about bringing the elixir back home uh with the infinity gauntlet and all of that was like super cool so if anyone's listening i highly recommend checking out wisecracks uh mcu joseph campbell video and definitely checking out hero's journey by joseph campbell i'm i'm somewhat familiar with it uh because of one of the courses i took in college um but i never gave it a really thorough read so this was a a great bit for me dude
1: dope i'm glad you liked it um the only thing i want to say before we wrap
0: up is
1: i think it, it was probably the case that the more uh mainstream the like film or television uh, the more manicured the arc is to be like perfectly adherent to the hero's journey because mm-hmm. it's such a riskless it's almost like generic at this point you know we for writers who are familiar with the hero's journey you'd want many of them would want to in you know in the for the sake of creating new adventurous art you're trying to manipulate the things in the hero's journey and warp it you don't want to necessarily abide by the the formula Even though you recognize its uh, ubiquity and its importance, and uh, the the psychological ways that it affects readers or experiencers of the art, but Disney doesn't want to take risks, right? Like it's just it it wants something that it knows is going to sell. That they're going to pour all this money into it. They're not going to try to be avant garde, right? They're going to try to be as mainstream as possible. That is your skill tree. I'm R.K. Taylor, Woo! this is Carlos Gutierrez,
0: and so tasty, skill tree. we are out.
1: Thank you for listening to Deep in the D-Pad. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share us with your friends.
0: For updates and discussion, follow us on Reddit at r slash Deep in the D-Pad, Facebook at Deep D-Pad, and subscribe to Deep in the D-Pad on YouTube. Don't forget to hit the bell.
1: And if you want to ask us questions or had a chance to share your own D-Pad delight on the show, Email us at askdeepinthedpad at gmail.com. Be sure to put question or delight in the subject line.
0: Big thanks to 8-Bit Jazz and Kevin McLeod for supplying the music for the show.